Okay, here, I'm at the Game Developers Conference and with me today is a special guest. How about you introduce yourself? I am Arthur Humphrey. I'm the founder and lead designer and lead engineer at Last Day of Work. And you, sp you focus on specific types of games. Can you talk about uh, the genre that you do? Yeah, we, we specialize in virtual life sims and virtual pets, and we disguise them as adventure games and tycoon games and a variety of other genres. So we really are in a hybrid. But uh, at heart, the games are virtual pets that run in real time like a Tomagotchi. And, um, yeah, so I interviewed you a few years ago. Uh, what have you been up to recently in terms of games that you're releasing and platforms that you're on? Well, we're still here. Okay. Uh, That's awesome to hear. It's <laughs> a great start. Uh, we're um, expanding some of the franchises that we, we talked about back, uh, um, back when we, we did talk before. The leading franchise is always Virtual Villagers, and uh, we've done three chapters of that now and brought two of them over to iPhone, one through a license uh, and one we've done in-house, and they've both done really well. Uh, we brought Fish Tycoon over to iPhone, and now we're trying to create something new again, and we're creating what I describe as the game I always wanted to make, and it's a virtual life simulator that uh, at first glance probably resembles The Sims. It's a, a family in a house, uh, but uh, mechanically, from a game design perspective, it's much more emergent, it's much more of a simulation, it's very sandboxy. And we're really excited about it. It's got some really crazy features that, that hopefully will, will create some emergent narratives that really represent the drama that life gives you. You know, the ups and downs and, uh, and the, the big themes like uh, family, career, happiness, health, death. Sure. And, you know, since the last time we spoke, have you, um, I guess, come with come into any other realizations about how to effectively communicate simulations to your audience or um, some of the, I know you have this underlying algorithm that you have to constantly test as you're balancing your game. I don't know if you've um, tweaked that or come to any other new realizations or understandings related to that. There, there are a lot of levers that we've discovered in the design of this type of game. Uh, and one of them relating to what you're mentioning is how much do you want the game to be emergent? How much do you want to let the algorithms tell the story? And how much do you want to also put in, uh, you know, a, a handcrafted, let's call it pre-rendered story? And we've done both, and we tried to mix these. Basically, if you put the lever all the way to the handcrafted story, you get a rich, wonderful story that engages the players, and you get zero replayability. And if you put the lever the other way, you get maximum replayability, but the story becomes a little bit generic as the player can quickly break it down into these pieces that the algorithm is putting together for their narrative. So we try to kind of do both. In Virtual Villagers we did that by having a meta story but leaving the game sandboxy so that the way they unlock these chapters of the story as they play are completely order independent and uh, a lot of emergent stories can still come out of the game like members of your tribe that are very quirky that will do this and that and they start to bond friendships and people come up they fill in the blanks with these stories that happen in the game and in fact people do this and focus so much on the families in their tribes that we realized we needed to make a game that was just about these family units. That's what led us to the uh, to the idea of making a family simulator. Yeah, um, I was visiting your virtual villagers forum, and I was just amazed at how many people are actually writing stories about their um, about their families. Um, you know, what what trends have you noticed with that? And do you think do you see any kind of direct correlation as you actually tweak? 
I guess, some of the features so that, you know, if you're going more story-oriented, they're going to write less about their family. If you're going more sandbox-oriented, they're going to write more about their family. I mean, do you notice any kind of correlation? Or I, You know, we don't do a lot of, like, data gathering on that, but I would totally agree with what you're saying. I think the more you write the story for them, the less they're going to fill in the blanks. It's just like when you see a movie about a book that you loved, and they take away all of the parts that you can imagine, and they just lay it all out for you. So we, we definitely want to leave some parts of the game um, to the imagination, let's say. And, and that's where we come in with, with gaps in the story and emergent elements. I totally agree with that. We, we listen to these narratives that the players make, too, and, and to us it's much more informative than asking them what they want in a game. If you ask them what they want in a game, they inevitably are going to be like, oh, we want pets, we want them to have a kitten, and the kitten should have a pet mouse. You know, and it's it's kind of funny, and, and we listen to them, and we want to put these things in, but then we we look at what they really talk about and what they really care about, and it's always these fictional marriages between tribe members that's not even supported by the code. And so we're like, well, that's what they really want. They're, they're asking for this. You give it to them, and they're like, okay, but you could have done it better. Instead, we're trying to give them what they really want, not what they, they think they want. Sure. Yeah, can you talk about what they really want? I mean, you talk about the marriages. Is there anything else that you've seen that has resonated with your audience? I think that players ask for things they absolutely don't want. And this is something we've learned. And it's very interesting as a designer to try and come to terms with asking a player what they want. And a lot of players will say, well, we want this to be easier. I hate it when this happens. And if you remove it, you take the soul out of the game. When you remove consequences, you you make the, uh, the victories meaningless. Sure. So we pride ourselves in not giving them what they ask for and instead giving them what I think they want. Okay. Uh, apart from that, we, we do see them talking about families and sure. uh, marriage and, you know, they're kind of playing, playing doll with, with virtual villagers, which I love. And so let's put them in a dollhouse. And we're not trying to be The Sims, and it's not The Sims. The more you look at it, the more you realize the game runs in real time. They have a very finite life. It syncs night and day cycles to your local time. Yeah. So at night, it's dark in the game, and they're sleeping. Uh, and the game's not about buying IKEA for your house and decorating. The game's about being happy and making a family and finding a compatible spouse. And there's kind of a dating algorithm, and it gets harder the longer you wait. And there's an illness algorithm where people catch a cold that goes through the house and you have to deal with that. There's a lot of, uh, of these aspects that people are, are writing about on their own, yeah. that we're giving them algorithms to support that dialogue and that narrative. Yeah, now are you doing anything where players can socially interact with other players within the context of this game, or is that even happening, or how does that work? We are, are inching towards connectivity. Uh, we're not going to have large connected elements in this game, and partly that's because of philosophy. Um, when we first designed these games, we called them single-player single, single player persistent worlds. And it came out of my kind of enjoyment of playing World of Warcraft, but going somewhere all by myself, you know, and doing something on my own, but knowing that the world was persistent. And I enjoyed that so much. Sometimes I didn't, didn't want to see the other players. I just wanted to be in a persistent world. So we tried to create that in a single-player game. So all the games, obviously, when you turn them off and turn them back on, time has passed. Uh, the children are a little bit bigger. Everyone's a little bit hungrier or wealthier or deader. It depends. And, and so we're kind of embracing this single-player persistent world. We tampered a little bit. We kind of experimented with connectivity on Virtual Villagers by letting people exchange stats and compete with yeah. kind of arbitrary game stats. 
And since then, we've come to the belief that it's one of those things that you should really dive in and do really well or really steer clear of it. Okay. And for now, we're staying in the single-player position world, but we have some plans for later in the year for some really connected products that were designed from a connectivity point of view. Unannounced products still. Sure. Um, can you talk about the, um, you said there was like a meta story or a meta template, um, and so you have that lever between you know pure sandbox versus story. Um, what, what are the templates that you're using in terms of story and how, I mean, can you talk about the specifics in terms of how you're actually balancing out, you know, pure story versus pure sandbox? Absolutely. You know, if you look at a game that's pure sandbox, like SimCity, you get a certain emergent story, like you build some really weird city and you can kind of come up with some of the parts, but it is a little bit, it comes a little, a little bland in a way because it's so emergent that every game is totally different, but in a way totally the same. Uh, with with Virtual Villagers 3 as an example, we put in a story that continued the first stories, and it's kind of a story that you could compare to the TV show Lost, where there's this mysterious island, and we're continually giving them little bits of background of who was there before. They're rebuilding ruins. There's a lot of mystery. And we let them rebuild the ruins in whatever order they want, or not rebuild them, uh, or you know do this or that. So the game is basically sandboxy, but they hit milestones where we actually will pop in a cinematic screen. Now, this pre-rendered story is really important to indies and to casual developers. They need to understand that it's, it's great to give a little more soul to the game, but it's also important from a branding perspective. If you make a strong story like this, you can copyright it. And people won't try to clone your game and copy your story exactly. They'll try to make their own story. Sure. And if your game is successful, people will start to care about your world. And it's the number one defense against people copying your game. These stories, and the story of, of Virtual Villagers takes place on an island called Isola. And by the third or fourth chapter, people care about this island. They want to know what's going on here. They don't care what's happening on the clone island that someone else came up with. It's just like Harry Potter. Yeah. People read book two, and they get into it, or read book one, and they want to read them all. And they don't want to read some other copycat story. They care about Harry and Harry's world. So. It's, it's effective as a mechanic, and it's effective for branding. And can you talk about, I guess, um, other things that would be that indie and casual game developers could um, could use to either appeal to their audience more or cater to their audience more? I think that we're we're seeing. Uh, Another kind of emergent demographic within the casual demographic that people are calling more and more the enthusiast players. And this is an open door for indie developers to get into these casual portals. And the portals are becoming more and more open to it. When we started launching these games, they were a bit too core for the portals and we had a real fight to get them listed. But everyone was surprised how well they did. I think that indie developers, like myself, need to put on you know the sheep's clothing and start really accepting that their game can be a casual product and and be involved in casual distribution and the wide distribution that's available there. I think indie gamers tend to the traditional indie gamers tend to be a little proud and put their game on the indie sites, and I, I think they need to to wrap them a little differently, get the um, casual game's best standards in there, where the buttons should be, just to make a few tweaks and realize that these are, are the best casual games that, that, they can, that there can be. The casual games that are being created as casual games, by often by suits, you know, are, are a bit repetitive and unimaginative, and they are profitable, and they make their money, and then they go on. But the indie games that hit in the casual space, they have legs. They sell and sell and sell. 
Can you talk about other tycoon or simulation games you've seen in the casual game space that you know have either inspired you or you found compelling? Yeah, well, there's certainly other successes in the sim genre in casual. And you look at games like Build a Lot by Hipsoft, yeah. and you know we're friends with them, and we we think that we we made it a little easier for them to distribute their their arguably sim title. And you know they made a real accessible game that casual players love, and it just has a huge tail. It sells and sells. It's a great example. Um, there, there are some other tycoon games out there, but but I think Build a Lot's a great example. And, and I know their story was fun too because they created a game that was based on Warcraft, uh, the original, not the MMO. Sure. Where they created a game that. Uh, that was the building part of Warcraft that kind of ends when the war would begin. It just, it just uh, boils down the, the construction and infrastructure part of that game and they made it casual. I, I think that, that's, that's exciting and I like how they did that. And let's talk about now new platforms for your games. Um, you know, you talked about iPhone. Are you? I know before you were kind of talking about you had some demos in Flash. I mean, are you um, now embracing some of these more web-friendly platforms so that you can implement the social connectivity that you were talking about that might happen in future games? Or how's that working out? The web-friendly is one of our Achilles' heels because we are. We're, we're known in the casual space, but we are kind of an indie developer, and our games have a little more under the hood than, than Flash wants to let us do. So it's a little tougher for us to bring them into web playable. We have done it historically. Uh, now, other platforms like iPhone are another story. The games were actually conceived on the Palm Pilot years ago. So the innate design is touchscreen friendly, and they're just a natural fit for iPhone. So what we're doing now is just bringing the whole catalog to iPhone, almost as is, a few adaptations for the hardware, and uh, people are loving them. So that's, that's kind of the first thing we're doing for in-house alternative platform work. Um, after we finish bringing the catalog over sometime this year, uh, and that will include Virtual Villagers 3. Virtual Families will come to iPhone immediately after um, the desktop launch in about you know a month or six weeks. Sure. Uh, so we're aiming for kind of a May 1st rollout for Virtual Families. Then probably Virtual Villagers 3 after that. Then we'll start to um, implement some exciting custom designs for iPhone. And there'll be smaller, evolving games with more connectivity. Uh, a little bit more experimental, and we can do that because the development costs are still relatively low on that platform. Okay, great. Um, any last words then for other indie game developers out there who want to, um, you know, make an impact? I, I, I like to talk to the indie gamers, and, and I've spoken at the Indie Summit, and I really connect with these developers the most, and I hope that I can be an example for them that you can take your indie game and turn it into a casual game, and you're not selling out. You, you know, you're just maybe making more money. And uh, we're seeing some people start to do this and some runaway indie hits like World of Goo and they're starting to cross over. But I think it could be done a lot more and I'm going to be evangelizing that as well all year. I'm going I'm to keep telling people that until their ears bleed. Okay, great. Uh, thank you very much.